Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we go on vacation and the entire world implodes, apparently, (laughs) Um, at least the social media world. I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks. With me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. I'm not sure if I'm really Karen Peterson. I did not pay to get verified, so... You could be Elon Musk. I there I are be. lots of Elon mm-hmm. Musks running around right now. It's really I could amazing. also be Eli Lilly. Who knows? <laughs> or Lockheed Martin. <laughs> or Jesus. Or, or God. Who apparently is finally verified on Twitter. <laughs> they verified Jesus. Great. Uh no, Jesus verified himself with eight dollars. Eight dollars. <laughs> so for those of you who are not very much on social media, as we congratulations. We talk, congratulations. But even if you're not, you've probably heard some of this. Um, because it has been everywhere. Like <laughs> I'm seeing it, like I even had some friends ask me, like, so what's going on with Twitter? It's just like, oh my God, I don't know. <laughs> I have no clue what's going on with Twitter. No one knows. Um, so Elon Musk, as we know, bought Twitter uh, and has managed within the space of about two weeks, uh, really one week now, to completely destroy it <laughs> by by firing everybody, first of all, by trying by rolling and out by this- everybody. We mean everybody. He fired the board of directors. He fired the CEO, the the legal counsel, literally like everybody that mattered at that company. Yeah. And then he's trying to hire people back because yeah. they got fired. They're like, oh, you shouldn't have been fired because we actually need you. Oopsie. Uh, yeah, so, so it's, and then he's, he's like making people work massive amounts of time, um, in order to roll out the things that he wants done and, uh, and they're not working. And, and the big thing was this, this whole idea about being verified. Uh, and if, again, if you're not on Twitter, this isn't going to make much sense, but the idea behind verification is that it says that you are who you say you are basically. Oh, and this yeah. was primarily used by, by bigger accounts. Oh. Uh, it was notoriously difficult to get verified. Um, The intention behind it was so that like celebrities, notable people, companies, stuff like that couldn't be um, um, like, what's the word? Not parodied, but um, like so that people couldn't make it look like they were not impersonated. That's the word. Thank you. It's it's early and I'm tired. (laughs) That's the word. Yeah. So that you couldn't impersonate these big accounts. And it wasn't. It wasn't originally intended to be like, oh, this person has a blue check mark. That way they're more reliable of a source of information or anything like that. But that's kind of what it devolved into over the over recent times. It it did become kind of a mark of of importance and Mm -hmm. of reliability, et cetera. And, um, you know, and and yeah, and the whole idea behind it, 
is just absolute. I mean, honestly, I think everybody should be verified in the sense that yeah. you should be, you should prove that you are who you say you are, basically. Yeah, yeah, it would um, really cut down on the bots and all the things that that make social media a problem. Like, I don't know yes. how many fake accounts are following me on Twitter and Instagram, but it's ridiculous. Exactly. Yeah, and and um, so so this so this this was the whole concept behind verification. So Elon Musk rolled out this idea of we're going to let people, or we're going to make people more or less pay for verification. Mm-hmm. And initially, the idea was twenty dollars a month. And Stephen King said, fuck you, I'm not going to pay $20 a month. And Musk on Twitter, on Twitter, publicly responded uh-huh. to Stephen King and was like, well, how about $8 a month? Uh-huh. And, and first of all, it's just like, what a fucking loser. I mean, there, that, that was the first thing. It's just like, how much of a fucking nerd can you be? That Stephen King says, you know, you, I, I won't pay for this, and you like beg him. Okay, well, well what about eight dollars? Yeah, like, like trying to negotiate me? with one of your biggest users. Uh, yeah, like in front of everybody, it's the weirdest thing. It's like it's like watching a pilot take over the controls and immediately drive it, drive the plane into the ground. That, that's it's. <laughs> It's wild. It's wild. Yeah. And so so they they did roll out verification, but then it was like, well, we're going to ver we're going to keep certain accounts verified because they're verified for reasons, right? Because right. they're notable or or you know, celebrities, brands, etc. Um, but other accounts are going to be verified because their owners paid eight dollars. This has then resulted in massive amounts of impersonation and people like literally just trolling. Uh so we so um, someone verified their own account and represented themselves as Lockheed Martin mm-hmm. um, to talk about like how their planes were were bombing Iraqis. Uh, um, what was it, Eli Lilly? Yeah, uh, this one is a big big mess. This is yeah. going to cause law. This is the one that's going to cause lawsuits. And and what they so someone verified an account representing themselves as Eli Lilly and then proclaimed that insulin was free, um, yeah. which tanked their which tanked the real Eli Lilly's stock because they uh, were like, yeah, um, hi, it's not. And people were like, well, fuck you then. Yeah. And so it's it's like spiraled in, into this entire thing. And this is advertisers, as as uh, I think most people have noticed, advertisers are like fleeing from it. Um, there are a lot of places like places like NPR, some news organizations are essentially saying, don't right now, don't like talk about your Twitter handle on air. Um, hold back on that because we don't know what's happening. We don't know where this is all going to go. And it's just an absolute clusterfuck. Musk just keeps on digging himself deeper and deeper. And Twitter is rapidly losing money. Uh, and it already wasn't particularly solvent. Right. Um, I mean, he has a 1.2 billion is the most recent estimate I heard. But then I just saw something that said it could actually be more like 1.4 billion dollars that is so much money and that is just an interest payments that he is obligated to pay every year and he's got a big fat one coming up like in a few weeks before the end of this year he's supposed to pay 1.2 or so billion dollars um in interest alone that is and this is on a company that has been like just throwing like burning money yeah that has been losing was losing money already 
mm-hmm. right? That and and you know, and there's been all of this talk about Twitter basically being insolvent. Musk is already floating the idea that Twitter's going to have to declare bankruptcy, which yeah. actually isn't going to affect the loans that he took out. Right. Um, because they're personal loans. Like he took out massive numbers of loans, including leveraging his own Tesla stock. Mm-hmm. Which buy, is also tanking. Which is also tanking to buy Twitter and subsequently destroy it within, like I said, this has happened within the space of about a week. Yeah. All of what we're talking about, like Karen went on vacation and. I was gone for a weekend. It was a three day weekend. That's how long I was gone. <laughs> And it was, and Twitter fell apart. It was amazing. It was like, didn't know that you were the glue that was holding Twitter together, Kara. No, like. I, I, I contain multitudes, but um, yeah, no, before we started recording, I was, I was saying it felt like that, uh, that gif from c- the show Community with Donald Glover, where he is holding a stack of pizzas, he walks into the apartment and it's all on fire. And I feel like that, like I just stepped away for a minute. I turned my back for just a minute and I came back and everything is burning. And I'm just like, what the hell happened? It's uh, it's wild. I like I was watching it in, in real time because I was like, oh, I log on to Twitter. What the fuck is happening <laughs> right now? Um, you know, and and people are like, so so then there was this whole thing about, you know, moving to, to Mastodon and Mastodon has its own issues. Um, mostly because it's confusing as fuck. Yeah. Uh, but so now there's this whole you know, thing that's getting going. And, and it's something that we're dealing with as well. It's like, okay, if Twitter completely destroys itself, right, what do we do? Like there, there is this community um, that has been formed on Twitter around different areas. Twitter is like, has been, as, as we talked about, you know, Donald Trump getting kicked off of Twitter was a major thing. Yeah. Um, it has been this major force and it it seems like it's it's about to not be right or or definitely it's going to change. Um, one of the things that that I did have to say that we were talking about before we we started recording is that there's been this very rosy kind of almost maudlin sense of like oh but I've met so many wonderful people and it's been such a wonderful experience to be on Twitter and for me and I think everybody has different experiences on Twitter. Um, for me, I that's true and not true because mm-hmm. I Karen I met you via Twitter. Yeah. Exactly. I met Kristen via Twitter. I met Kim via Twitter. I I know a lot of lovely people as a result of being on Twitter and being engaged in film Twitter, especially, um, and having these debates, conversations, et cetera. And that's been really good. And I, I wouldn't exchange that particularly. At the same time, I have had to lock my account because of MRAs coming after me because I said something about David Ayer. Um, I have gotten into these massive fights where like literally one of my friends recently said like Twitter has made me cry, like actually cry. And it's true. It's like Twitter, it can be incredibly toxic and people talked about it as being incredibly toxic. So I have this, I have a little bit of a problem with this, like, oh, it was so wonderful. We're going to miss it so much. Just like, but it really wasn't like Twitter had problems long before Musk came along and that's been evident for years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in 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 your case with the David Ayer thing, I mean, part of that, one of the things that made Twitter so attractive, at least in the early days, because like I've had my account since 2009. I didn't always use it very, you know, very um, um, frequently, I guess. But, you know, it, it became something that be- was more and more part of my daily life 
um, a few years in, but I've had it for a long time. And a big part of the draw was that it, it created these sort of communities and it helped people feel connected because celebrities were using it. Brands were using it. You could have like cool conversations. I remember, you know, back in the early days during TV shows that I liked, you could watch them and be on Twitter at the same time. And the stars were live tweeting and would interact with people. And it was really fun. And that's one of the things that that really made Twitter different, really set it apart from the other social media platforms was this like instant, not even instant gratification, although it was part of it, but like instant connection with lots of different people. And you didn't even have to be following each other to find each other. And yeah. Um, and that was one of the things that was great. But then what started to happen, and this is something that happened to you, that David Ayer situation, part of that, part of what happened to you was because David Ayer got fucking involved and retweeted the, and, and participated in that conversation and participated in the attacks against you. And we've seen yeah. a lot of celebrities doing that too. So it's like also revealed this really ugly side of people having too much access, I guess, to each other. Yeah. Well, and, and, and Twitter not having a very good moderation policy. You right. Know, like I, I can't tell you how many accounts I've reported for like just saying nasty shit basically oh, yeah. to me, to my friends, to people, just, just like things that I've seen, like retweeted threats, like just yeah. nothing and, happens yeah. and very little actually happening. Sometimes, you know, they get suspended or something like that, but a lot of the times just like no, nothing actually happens. Just like, Oh, well, this isn't a problem. It's just like, he's harassing me. Like he won't leave me alone. It's like, well, you can block him. Um, and it's just like, yeah. And then he's screen capping all of my tweets mm-hmm. and still harassing me. And like, and other people are coming in to harass me. So and that's guess, that's like guess what I'm, people have multiple accounts <laughs> yeah exactly i i'm a relatively small account like i'm not i don't have a huge following or anything like that but you know and then you see it even more with with people with much larger followings um people have talked about you know one of the worst things that can happen is for a big account to retweet a small account because yeah. Yeah. Because that that's when your tweet goes viral. And sometimes it's positive. Sometimes you get like a lot of good attention, a lot of good conversation, et cetera. And but a lot of the time it's like, oh, some rando dude is going to harass you for the next 10 hours. Um, and and this this is a problem. And this is something that Twitter was is really bad at, was really bad at, is going to be worse at. I've actually had less trolls now like mm-hmm. in the past week than i ever have yeah. partially because a whole bunch of people are just leaving and oh everyone's focused on like the elon musk stuff so you know yeah no one's it's coming true. after me over it's, johnny depp <laughs> yeah it's kind of becoming a little it feels a little bit like a ghost town and it's interesting because i don't i don't know what's gonna happen with twitter but just as you were talking it reminded me of and my experience with Twitter has been much different from yours. And it's not because I'm posting less controversial takes. I just seem to get lucky and not um, get, I guess people care less about what I say than you do. I don't <laughs> no, know. I'm an asshole. Like, I'm I an asshole, Karen. The, right, That's but, the problem. <laughs> but we can say the same, like pretty much the same thing, but people are going to go after you and not me. Maybe it's because I don't take the time to respond. I just mute everyone. But um, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I, I have my own problems with the way that I interact with Twitter and I've actually changed <laughs> it o- over the I've tried to like be better about it over the years and things like that. But um, but, but this, this just reminded me, though, of one time this is several years ago. This is before Twitter really became like the cesspool that it has been in the last year or two. Um, 
But years ago, I was at a film festival. I was in a screening for something. And I came out and I had 150 notifications. And I don't, I didn't, I was, I hadn't tweeted really anything. So I was just like, oh, what is this? You know, like that is terrifying to see, like, because I'm not used to that kind of interaction. And what had happened was a comment I had shared to someone else's thread got included in a Twitter moment and oh no yeah yeah (laughs) and it turned out to be fine there were some people who really didn't like my opinion but most people were liking it so it ended up being like those 150 notifications that kept going um this lasted for a day or two it ended up like overall being okay but it was terrifying that pit in your stomach of like oh no I like being on Twitter but I don't Mm want to go viral (laughs) Well, and that, that's the thing. That's that's the horrible thing is that that amount of engagement and and just and you know potential discussion, et cetera, should be good. Yeah, right. That should be a positive thing. But yeah, exactly. I think that that a lot of people have had that experience. I've had I've had similar experiences where you see, oh no, people are responding to me. <laughs> oh no, I've got a whole bunch of notifications. I don't want to look. I don't want to look. <laughs> and and sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's yeah. a good thing. But as soon as you begin getting those, you're going to get nasty shit. You're going yeah. to get nasty people. Um, even if the majority of them are positive and, and that's really hard and that can be very, it can be distressing. It can be scary. Um, you know, I, I remember there was an interaction with one guy that like a couple of years ago that honestly frightened me. And, and I, I was like, I was like, I'm afraid that he's going to show up at my apartment or something. Like I had, I had this moment where I was like, can he figure out where I live? Like the, and that's scary. That's really Mm -hmm. distressing. And the fact that there's nothing that can really be done about that is, is one of the things that has made Twitter a really toxic place. And so I, I do think that while we're, you know, talking about like, oh my God, this, this whole thing is imploding this massive social media site. We got to remember that this has not all been beautiful you know a a gorgeous rose garden basically right yeah i mean if it if it was going really really well there wouldn't have been an incentive to sell it in the first place i think that yeah that jack and the the folks behind the sale um the the previous owners of twitter i think that for them a big part of it was like you know what let's just let's just get out from under this you know this is we kind of created a monster and we don't know how to fix it so we'll just let someone else come in who supposedly has a lot of mm-hmm. ideas you know someone the other day i saw was saying like oh jack dorsey must really be regretting that sale and i'm just like are you kidding he got his billion dollars he's fine he doesn't give a shit i wouldn't yeah, <laughs> you yeah know? He, he does he doesn't have to deal with any of this shit anymore yeah um, exactly uh yeah it's it's someone else's problem mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. God only knows. I mean, even as we're talking, who knows what's happened? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, by I the time, know. by the time this episode releases, Twitter might not exist anymore. I keep on <laughs> waiting to wake up and try to log in and just being like that website does like, isn't that, uh-huh. the domain like, name is, is he's going to forget to, he's going to forget to renew it. And cause that's the other thing is like, he fired the entire board. He has like no employees. He's basically running it by himself. So he's going to forget to renew their domain. Someone else is going to buy it and uh, that'll be it. Yep. But to remind everyone who's listening, we are still on Twitter, but we are also on Instagram uh, and, and we are also on Letterboxd. And I have a feeling we're going to be on a couple more places as well, just so that we, we're, yeah. we protect ourselves a little bit so that, you know, 
people can find us. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, yes, so be be certain if you follow us on Twitter, be certain to actually to also find us on those other sites, because we we will still be around. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, all right. Well, we're not going to talk about Twitter for the entire episode. This was just although a, we could. We absolutely <laughs> that could. much to say. <laughs> but this is a film podcast. God That's damn right. it. <laughs> and it is November. And I want to talk about some good film noir. Um, Hell Yes. <laughs> So we just actually wanted to to kind of riff a little bit uh, this time around because it is November and we have seen many good film noirs. It is only at time of recording. It is November 12th. Um, so we've got many more weeks of of excellent film noir. But we want to talk about some of the ones that are currently being shown on um, the Criterion channel on their November noir collection. And it first of all, it's a big collection. If you have the Criterion channel, definitely go check it out. Um, I have been re I've been watching primarily the ones that I haven't seen that are on there, um, but I've also been rewatching a number of them because these are some really great noir. Um, but we want to talk about a few of them, some of the most iconic ones and and ones that we've really been enjoying. Yeah. So wh where would you like to start, Karen? You want to start with we've got three films in particular that we wanted that we wanted to discuss. So why don't we begin with a detour? Okay. I think the detour is like a good place to start because it's a quintessential noir in a lot of ways. Um, it's kind of a B movie. It is, uh, it's one of those B movies that has become really like well-known basically. It's, it's a part of the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress. Uh, and it's just, it's probably, you know, when we talk about noir, it is definitely the seedy underbelly of noir. It isn't, these aren't big stars, particularly. These, this isn't, you know, a huge director or anything. This is a B movie about nasty people. Mm -hmm. um, so, if for those of you who have not seen Detour, uh, it stars Tom Neal and Anne Savage, and is is about um, is about a hitchhiker uh, who is an unemployed piano player, and he's trying to get to California. He's trying to get to Hollywood to find his girlfriend. Uh, who has moved out there to try to be an actress. And he basically, the the film like deals very deeply with this whole concept that noir really likes. And the, this is one of the things that the, the French in particular identified about noir, um, this whole concept of fate, of, you know, you can just be one of those people who is fated for things to go wrong. Uh, and that's essentially what happens to this poor guy. He, he winds up hitchhiking with, uh, a guy in Arizona who through a couple, through several different series of events, uh, winds up dying of a heart attack and things just go worse for this poor dude from there. Um, so I've seen this film a couple of times. It's actually very short. It's only about an hour and 10 minutes. It's very quick. It basically shit goes wrong real fast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What are what are your thoughts about this, Karen? This is this is the first time that you've seen it. Yes, I just watched it for the first time this week, and um, it's yeah. I mean, it is one of those that's been on my list for a long time, but it's not always readily available. So when I saw that it was added to Criterion, I was like, "All right, this is this is finally happening this month." So, um, I I really like how compact it is. The fact that it's only about like you said an hour and 10 minutes or so, it it doesn't take a lot of time to to set things up. It gives you exactly what you need to understand the relation like it doesn't shortchange anything either. So it gives you 
uh, just enough time with this guy and his girlfriend to understand why he would want to follow her out to California after she goes like that. You really understand that they he is in love with her. Um, she seems a little bit less um, invested in their relationship. She is, but she not as much as, as she is in her career in L.A. Um, but you really get to understand that it's not weird that he would um, hitchhike across the country to try to get to her and be with her. Um, and like you said, once he starts on that journey, this is a while after she's gone out there. Um, stuff goes wrong really fast and he's just runs into a string of bad luck, but he finally feels like his luck is turning around when he gets picked up by this guy who has some questionable, um, history and, you don't really know what his motives are, but things seem to be going well. And then the guy just dies all of a sudden. And then he makes some bad decisions as a result. And I just, I, I really like the way that the story is developed. And I like the way that you understand this guy's point of view. I wouldn't make any of the choices that he made personally, but I, the way that it's, it's laid out, you can kind of see where he's coming from and kind of see how his desperation propels him forward into um, first bad luck and then really bad choices that have yeah. consequences. And I just, I, I think it's great. It's, it's one of those things that it's, it is cascade failure, basically, yeah. where, you know, so he's in this situation, he's hitchhiking, he doesn't have a great deal of money, he gets picked up by this guy who's not like, as you say, he's not a particularly nice guy, right? But he's like, okay, but and but this guy's doing things like he's flashing the his wad of cash around. Mm-hmm. He's really presenting himself as being this very wealthy, very well to do dude, um, who is also definitely kind of on the wrong side of the law. Yeah. Uh, or in, in a gray area of the law but yeah so then you have this event where, he, where the dude the guy dies and you do understand why al who's is the main character um behaves as he does because he's sitting there we get the the very typical noir voiceover right uh-huh. um just just like and it's essentially what the hell am i supposed to do if i if i were you know what he should do is report it to the police but he it's understandable why he doesn't because his first reaction is like I am this dirty hitchhiker with no money. This guy has been flashing his money around. We're in this really nice car um, and he's dead. And he, and what happens is he falls out of the car and he hits his head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not even that, you know, he could show, oh, he, he had died of a heart attack. It's like, no, now it looks like he got hit on the head. Right. Um, and so his panic at this is like, I'm going to be accused of murder. That's, that's what he thinks is going to happen to him. Um, and it's a totally understandable panic in the situation that he's mm-hmm. in. And yeah, there's, totally. also, there's, there's also, I think, that edge of, um, you know, and, and the film and and particularly Al presents it as like, well, this is, you know, I'm I, I'm just fated to be like this, basically. But there's also that edge of like, yeah, but you, you were also in the car with a guy who has a lot of money and he suddenly died um, mm-hmm. and given you an opportunity in, in like the middle of nowhere, basically. Yeah, who's going to know? Nobody's yeah. looking for the guy. Uh, nobody's looking for Al. <laughs> like who's ever going to know? Yeah, who's who's going to know if you just take if you just take his clothes, you take his money, you take his car, etc. It's it's you know, it feels like so there's there's this interesting balance I think that the film accomplishes with um that whole idea about being fated, right? About this this kind of cascading cascading elements that are not particularly his fault 
but are also his fault. He makes choices and the choices prove to be very bad choices, um, yes. but are definitely being pushed along by greed and by, you know, desire also. Uh, I, the other thing that I really would like to talk about is is um, the character played by Anne Savage, who Vera. Uh, Vera, who is she's I wouldn't even classify her as a femme fatale because she's just one of the nastiest characters. <laughs> yes, I have ever seen on screen. And honestly, rewatching it, I I also rewatched Detour this week. Rewatching <laughs> it, I was like, I'd forgotten how terrible she really is. She's- awful i was just like i don't know how to feel about this <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that that's the thing she pops up and it's like she's not you know this this sultry vamp she's not veronica lake she's just like i know what you're doing and i am going to destroy your life if you do not basically share with me she's a drunk she she's just a very nasty person and yeah. you do get a little bit of her backstory and you definitely get the sense that she has been used and abused by the world Mm -hmm. um she's in a lot of ways she's in a similar position to al where her life has just been really terrible but she really is one of the least sympathetic kind of female characters on screen that i've seen in a long time oh yeah absolutely well and it's funny because as as soon as she shows up on screen she's hitchhiking and i knew exactly who she was right away based on the conversation that had happened previously. And I was like, do not pick her up. Do not let her get in your car. (laughs) And uh, he makes the choice and he lets her in his car. And um, yeah, she is. I saw someone on, I don't know if it was on Letterboxd comment that like Anne Savage was appropriately cast for the character just because she is so savage. (laughs) And I thought that was really funny. She's very true. (laughs) <laughs> she really she really is and and like and this this is like i say i think this is one of the nastiest movies in terms yeah. of uh, at least the, one of the nastiest movies that is on um this this november noir because it is very gritty it does feel very like uh a lot of it takes place on the road a lot of it takes place in like these seedy hotels seedy roadside um diners etc and and it it feels like you know, everything kind of goes from from not great to bad to worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it's such a great um, a great performance from Anne Savage because she just really does do such a good. Like when when you first see her, if you're not paying attention and thinking like, "Oh, this is that girl that that guy was talking about," um, like she does kind of initially look like this innocent. Oh, I just need a ride. Um, that very quickly changes when she reveals that she knows like she knows what al did she doesn't necessarily share how she knows right away but she knows um and uh she just the way that she has no problem being so mean and so cruel so demanding and just threatening him right off the bat like she just it's such an interesting thing because she doesn't even really try to once she's in the car like after that initial like innocent you know look just to get him to let her just to give her a ride um like she instantly turns and she never turns back like there's not like oh she's actually kind of sweet she's just desperate or anything like that it's just no she's because of her history because of her past she's just this person and she's going to destroy anybody who gets in her way yeah 
yeah it's it, really it's, fun <laughs> it, it it it's a great film and like it, and like you say it's like an hour and 10 minutes so it's like you know it's a very like you say it's a compact film mm-hmm. um and and it does kind of represent that those elements of of the noir that's about people on the fringes of society you know there's so many a lot of noir films really deal with you know the hitchhikers um people down on their luck people who have been sometimes through their own fault sometimes through no fault of their own uh kind of cast off in a lot of ways. Um, and and Al, I think, is represented as very much one of those forgotten man characters. Yeah. Where, you know, he's he's been employed, he's a piano player, he's a good piano player, but he um he doesn't really have a great deal of money. He doesn't have a great deal of success or anything. And and it get it just gets worse as you know, and and ultimately the poor guy is just trying to go to California. Like he's just trying to go find his, his, his girlfriend. girlfriend. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. It's it isn't it isn't this like big uh you know big crazy plot driver particularly he hasn't committed this massive crime initially. Right. Um it just it just goes from bad to worse and and it is like I say it is one of those elements of uh noir about this the fatedness of characters. Um, that this things are bad because you're you're fated to fail basically Mm -hmm. yeah so kind of on the flip side of uh this kind of noir is that a film that came out only a year later so detour is 1945 and this film is 1946 the blue dahlia uh which stars a whole bunch of people but especially alan ladd veronica lake uh william bendix and uh, Howard De Silva, who I always get weirded out whenever I see Howard De Silva in anything, um, he actually played a lot of film noir villains, and he's but he's best known for me at least as Ben Franklin in 1776. <laughs> uh, so whenever he shows up on screen, I'm just like Ben Franklin, why, <laughs> why? <laughs> How could you, Ben Franklin? Um, one of the really cool things I think about the Blue Dahlia is that the script was written by Raymond Chandler and uh, and you can see that kind of overlay of like Chandler's kind of concerns that Chandler has a, a romanticism to his to his work. He actually views a lot of his characters as being almost knight errants like Philip Marlowe is very much a knight errant and they're there. It's this whole idea of like down these mean streets, a man must walk who is not himself mean. Um so there's this idea of like uh, the the good man kind of pushing back against the darkness, pushing back against the grittiness and the violence. Um, it's it's a very interesting film. So the 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 basic plot is um, three uh, U.S. Navy aviators. Johnny Morrison is played by Alan Ladd, uh, Buzz Wanchek, and George arrive in Hollywood. They are like they've just returned. Um, from the south pacific buzz has shell shock and we see that pretty early on and it becomes a major point in, throughout the the story and johnny played by online goes home to see his wife and what he finds is that his wife is is drunk she is just kind of partying up with everybody and she's particularly gotten herself involved um with eddie harwood who owns the blue dahlia nightclub um through a whole bunch of of different events essentially uh it's Helen. Uh, Helen winds up murdered, and Johnny winds up suspected of her murder. And so most of the film is involved with him kind of trying to evade the police and also figure out who it was that killed his wife and why. And it gets very complicated, as indeed we would expect from a Raymond Chandler script. Um, 
but I think it's really well done. One of the things that I like about the Blue Dahlia is that it involves one of these other elements that comes up a lot in noir, which is the um, the the soldier returning from war. And a lot of film noir is, you know, post post war, so 1945-1946, these men who have gone through hell in a lot of ways and have kind of come out the other side and are now being expected to reintegrate into society and are struggling with it. Uh, a lot of film noir involves returning soldiers, people who have been in war and have been injured, et cetera. And the Buzz character in particular, I think is is the one of the most interesting representations um, of this because he's a really likable character, but at the same time has these moments where he just lashes out and gets confused and doesn't know what's happening and forgets things. Um, and he's being protected by his friends but this this is someone who is not being given any any sort of tools to reintegrate into society right which you know it's it's interesting because there's always been at least for me and um the stories that i've heard the the people that that i've you know known or whatever like you know i had two grandfathers that both um were they both were soldiers in world war ii and um it's it's one of those things where we just so um what's the word i'm really struggling with words today i don't know what my problem is but um i guess there's just like such this heroic um overlay to everybody who went off to world war ii because of what they were fighting against that um we as a society we kind of forgot to acknowledge a lot of the damage that they came home with and they weren't like you say they weren't given the tools to reintegrate into society and that's what we see with buzz who i think is such a fascinating character um not only because it's not very often to see this level of portrayal um someone who is now permanently disabled i mean he's very high functioning but he's permanently disabled because of his war injury um and that has some actual like real implications in the story and i think that um it's a it's a really interesting performance it's a really nuanced perform or character that um does like because of his inability to always express himself and because of his his um the way that he is prone to anger and stuff it can it causes some interesting um man i'm really struggling with words today it it causes it causes some like interesting plot complications but... it does there's another word i'm looking for <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> i'm really having That's a hard okay. time i don't know what my problem is <laughs> oh my um, gosh but but yeah, I, I agree with you about about Buzz. Like and and there is that sense, I think, particularly in later generations of, you know, the kind of stoic men who return and just like, oh yeah, like who who very often didn't even talk about their war experiences. Yeah. They talked about very specific ones. Yeah. Um and and one of the things I think is interesting about a lot of noir, and I think the Blue Dahlia definitely occupies this, is that a lot of these films are being made pretty immediately post-war. Right. right. So Blue Dahlia is 1946. Detour is 1945. Um, there are a lot of these films that are dealing directly with with exactly this. And they don't necessarily say the word shell shock. They don't necessarily say the word, you know, trauma, PTSD. Uh, yeah. 
things like that. But that's that's what they're talking about. And they represent those things very clearly. Buzz is traumatized. And Buzz also has a metal plate in his head that mm-hmm. that causes him problems, that causes him to black out. And so there's this whole thing that like he can't stand certain kinds of music. And he doesn't even seem to know why. It just bothers him. It like it sets him off. And it, it makes him go crazy, basically. And then this gets used, of course, within the, the context of the plot. But it does allow you to actually explore the fact that these are men who have like, been steeped in violence for years and have seen horrible things and done horrible things and are now just expected to come back and, and be normal. Right. I think one of the things that I really particularly like about the way that it's done here, sorry, I, I think I just interrupted you, but um, it's the fact that it would be very easy to, they don't take the easy way out, I guess, in in how his condition is portrayed and they don't make him an, a scapegoat either. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that's really important. Yeah, he he's a he's a very important character and he winds up being very instrumental in kind of the final solution of to the story. Um and but they they don't go in a direction which honestly the first time I saw the Blue Dolly, I thought I thought I I knew what direction they were going to go in. Um should have trusted Raymond Chandler more. because <laughs> uh, he's, <laughs> he's, he's definitely very... more nuanced than uh, than others. <laughs> yeah, he's he's very good at misdirection as well. Like Raymond yeah. Chandler, so much of the Blue Dahlia, by the way, in terms of plotting so much of it is very much Raymond Chandler-esque in the sense that there are like whole subplots that you think are involved in the solution (laughs) to the story and aren't at all yep it's um and and but it's very well done and of course we have the scenes where like the hero gets beat up the hero gets captured um the hero has Veronica Lake is an interesting figure in this movie because she's actually not in it that much and she just kind of wanders in and and then <laughs> so wa- and then wanders back out and it's just like what is Veronica Lake even doing here? I mean, I like her. I enjoy her on screen, but she doesn't have that much to do. Uh no. and she's considered one of the stars of the movie, but you hardly see her and she doesn't factor into the overall plot as much as yeah. you think she's going to. <laughs> You think she's going to have some kind of involvement and she's definitely more instrumental, I think, at the, in the first half of the film than in the second yeah. half. Um, to, to go to go back to the, the, the discussion about war heroes and about violence in particular, I think one of the interesting things that I noticed this time around, and I don't know whether you picked up on this, um, in the scene between Johnny and Helen, his wife, uh, you know, he gets angry, understandably, he gets angry. He's, he's found her with all of these people. He's found her with this guy that is she's probably having an affair with. Um, but there is this whole backstory about them and about their son who's been killed Mm -hmm. in a car crash. And, and one of Helen says something like, and I can't remember the exact words, but she says something like, um, you know, you, you, basically you, you went away. Uh, I had to deal with all of this. I had to be a mother. I had to be here. Maybe our son is better, is better off being dead than being in a family that is that just has all of this violence in it and so there's this implication that their marriage was deeply unhappy um before he went away to war uh and and that in fact he was actually a violent person that they had violent arguments that their their son was kind of having to face this and so it complicates i think particularly the helen character because she could have been just this you know 
floozy, basically. Uh, who's, you know, oh, my husband is a war hero, but I'm just going to go running around with all of these underworld types and have a good time and get drunk, et cetera. But there, there's motivation to that. There's a reason that's underlying it. Um, and Especially that's, when they, sorry. No, go on. I was, and that's really important to her character. Go on. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, in line with that, it's it's really significant when you find out what actually happened to their son, because he has believed that the this kid, Dickie, um, got pneumonia and died. And she confesses that she was driving drunk and crashed the car. And he didn't know that. And it's clearly something that she has um, been using her parking to self-medicate because she has yeah. a lot of guilt over that. And I think it's, it's another, just to your point, like she's not just a floozy. She's really this damaged person who has a lot of pain herself. She didn't go off to fight in war, but she was kind of fighting her own private war at home. Yeah. She, she's traumatized herself. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that it's, and the trauma is obviously very long, long lived. This isn't something that is like you say, that is a result of war or even the result of her husband going away to war, but their entire relationship, their entire life. And and it's an interesting element and it, and it complicates our understanding of Johnny as a character as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So any any final thoughts about the Blue Dahlia? Um, I just, I think that it's just a, it's such, like you said, it's, there's a lot of misdirection. So it's such an interesting, twisty, turny kind of movie that really keeps you interested and invested the whole time. And I think that, all the characters are really interesting, whether they're in there for just a little bit or for a long time. I mean, I I kind of figured out early on. Well, no, 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 not figured out. I guessed early on who probably killed Helen. And it turned out that I was correct, but I had no idea how you would get to that point. I had no idea why that would have happened. Um, and there's so many way times along the way where I was just like, oh, well, obviously it wasn't that person. It was this person. And then to just constantly getting those things checked off of like, nope, nope, nope. It's just, it's a really fun, uh, it's a really fun movie. I, I highly recommend it for people who haven't watched it before. Yeah, it's it's really well done. I, I've seen mm-hmm. it a couple of times now. And I I honestly, I've seen it a couple of times and I keep on forgetting who did it because it's so <laughs> twisty and turny. Yeah. Um, like I was rewatching it again. And I was just like, I don't remember who the killer is. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I remember it not being one particular person, but I don't remember like how it all actually plays out. Um, yeah. Yeah. It just, yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, I, there wasn't really a particular reason for me to guess correctly. I just, did i don't know if it was because of raymond chandler's name on it i was just like oh well probably it was this person but i don't know why (laughs) i don't know (laughs) so again that is on criterion channel uh and so the the last film that we wanted to talk about i think we want to talk about a few more others as as well that we've been watching but i really wanted to get to sweet smell of success yeah uh which is a much later film so 1957 uh so we're talking like a decade later uh, and stars Burt Lancaster and and Tony Curtis. It was directed by Alexander McKendrick. And you know, speaking of of nasty characters um, <laughs> and unlikable characters, one of the things I actually like a great deal about noir is that noir can have everybody is the worst. Yeah. Like can have almost no sympathetic characters, or like one sympathetic character who gets murdered at some point, right? 
Um, and but that the main characters can be the least sympathetic people and it still be fascinating and still be enjoyable to watch. And you still kind of want to know what happens. And I think Sweet Smell of Success is definitely that it, it is. It is it, so it is about a press agent uh, played by Tony Curtis, um, who is is kind of pissed off because he's not getting any positive um, press for his clients. Uh, due to a conflict between him and J.J. Hunsucker, played by <laughs> Burt Lancaster. Uh, essentially, what, what winds up happening, and this all begins as kind of very late night in New York. I think that a lot of this was filmed on location as well. Um, and, and, and essentially what, what winds up happening is that uh, J.J. once once. Sydney, played by Tony Curtis, to uh, to basically badmouth, destroy the career of Steve Dallas, played by the very sweet and young Martin Milner. Um, is it Martin Milner? Yeah. Uh, who is in love with JJ's sister. And essentially, JJ has this very not healthy relationship with his younger sister, but doesn't want to himself destroy this, this young man's career because he doesn't want her to hate him. Uh, and, and so what winds up happening is, uh, Sydney is like going through these different machinations and, and is struggling himself with going this far, um, to actually destroy this young man's career in exchange for good press, basically. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, it's one of those where the stakes feel so high and yet so low, because when you really look at it, it's like, this is all about like power and control and media control. And Hunsucker is, is kind of this, this major figure, this media, media tout, right? Um, but it's really only because people like the way that he writes and that he is so nasty and so mean. Uh, the the character was apparently actually based on Walter Winchell, who's a famous uh, media columnist uh, in, I believe, the 1940s and 50s. Um, sort of a male version of Hedda Hopper. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, one again, one of the most unendurably nasty movies <laughs> and and is so good because I think of Tony Curtis and, and Burt Lancaster, who managed to be incredibly compelling and incredibly dislikable at the same time <laughs> it really concerns me how attractive i find burt lancaster in this movie <laughs> he is horrible and so hot um and it's disturbing but i think one of the things that makes this such a um such a fascinating film um and such an enduring film is that it shows that um show business not just hollywood but show business has always had this nasty element to it um a lot of underhandedness and you know i listen to people talk about how like oh hollywood's just awful nowadays and it's like well it kind of always has been and when you look back at a movie made in the 50s that is drawn from things that people were seeing in the 30s and 40s it's like yeah it's it there's always been this element there of uh, underhandedness and um you know a lot of tit for tat a lot of just yeah. really terrible deals being made at the expense of completely innocent people because of personal vendettas or um personal just wishes or whatever and i think that that's uh something that really comes across here in sweet smell of success i mean this whole thing is because a dude just doesn't want to watch his sister grow up and and live her own life <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it, exactly. And and he is, you know, it's it's interesting because we meet Tony Curtis. He's he's the first character that we meet. Mm-hmm. Um and he's he's already seedy as fuck, like almost right. immediately, right? <laughs> But you see it, it develops this ecosystem of press agents and talent agents and media columnists, et cetera. Um, and the power that Hunsecker particularly has within this world, right? Yeah. And, and and to to be to be clear, this is all taking place in New York. Um, right. This is all like jazz musicians and theater actors and and things like that. Um and and so you you get this like already you get this establishment of the way that this system works and the power that different columnists that different people have and how much Curtis's character in particular is willing to give up how much he's willing to sacrifice of his own morality and he's not a terribly moral character to begin with but even he when he when Hunsucker tells him here's what I want you to do even he is like are you crazy like no oh my god right (laughs) like like even he's just like that is disgusting and then he gets taught he basically gets talked into it he he falls in into it and the entire so much of the film you're waiting for him to do the right thing like you're waiting for that moment where he's actually going to be like no i'm not going to do this anymore and it kind of comes but it comes so late that like tragedy is basically inevitable it's it's really it's really well done a film about sacrificing your soul basically and and i think that that also speaks to then the burt lancaster performance because there were a number of actors who were were up for this role uh and lancaster and was actually lancaster and and, uh, curtis were actually cast because they had been in trapeze together and they worked really well together completely different film um but it's interesting to see both of them who are these very good looking men um, very sort of, you know, big Hollywood stars at that point, uh, being cast as such inherently unlikable characters. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Lancaster's um, performance in particular is is disturbing for exactly the reason that you were saying is because <laughs> so some of the other people that were up for this part were people like Hume Cronin or um, Orson Welles, who are very different figures right very different characters and i think both of them would have been great in the role but would have been very different in the role at the same time lancaster is so intense and charming and good looking and and at the same time you're just like oh he's so creepy you want to hit him um and he does such a great job at kind of using i think that that star power and his good looks and and his screen presence to create this deeply disgusting character. Mm-hmm. It's interesting just because I didn't know about some of the other actors that were originally tapped to play him. It would have completely been such a different, such a different movie. I just, it's, it's interesting, but I really love Burt Lancaster in this. I think he's so good. Um, and it probably helps that I haven't seen him in a lot of things, but I've usually seen him in more heroic roles, which is what made this such a, oh, I have complicated feelings <laughs> kind of situation. But Well, he's he's very, I think that he's very satanic almost. Yeah. Um, and and he and he's playing at that that side, that kind of satanic element of, you know, Lucifer as being the 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 brightest angel kind of thing. So you've got that combination of charm and attraction with 
terribleness. Oh yeah, absolutely. Horrible elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what makes it work so well is there is that charm. Um, If he had just been evil, um, if there hadn't, like if it had been another actor and it was just, he's this horrible person, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be clear why Tony Curtis, why that character would um, be willing to go along with anything he said, you know, but you have to have that, like he's hanging, he's dangling little bits of like, Oh, but if you do this, I'll give you that. And, and you believe that like, not only do you know he's capable, but you believe that he might actually follow through. And that's what makes him so dangerous too. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I, I do have to say this, this was a film that was shot by James Wong Howe, who, um, uh, is, is a fantastic cinematographer and did a whole bunch of noir. Uh, and you can tell like it, it, the, the, the grittiness of New York, the, um, the sensation of just like the closeness of everything. One of the scenes, I think where we're first introduced to Hunsaker, uh, and, and we go into like this club, right. And it's so, it's packed so tightly. It's this, you know, this intensity of, of humanity, basically. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's just really well done. It's a really well photographed film and a very well written film. It was uh, based on a, no- on a short novel by um, Ernest Lehman and Lehman and Clifford Odets wrote the, uh, the screenplay. And it's a very tight screenplay. It's a really, really well done film. It is. I'm glad you brought up James Wong Howe because I think that um, if I'm correct in this, I believe he was the first Asian cinematographer to win the Academy Award, which he did in, I want to say, 55. Um, so he came into this movie as an Oscar winner. But um, but yeah, um, he was Chinese American and he was, I believe, the first Asian cinematographer to win the Oscar. Yes, he, he won in 1955 for The Rose Tattoo, also yeah. with Burt Lancaster. Uh, and then again in 1963 for HUD. HUD, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh yep. two very intense films also. You <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> liked working on intense films. We got hired to work on intense films. Because <laughs> uh, he's so good at it. Obviously, yeah. So uh, so are there like other films that are part of this collection that you particularly wanted to shout out, Karen? I've I've watched a whole bunch of them. I think all of them are worth it, honestly. But do, are there ones that particularly stood out for you? It's really sad that I haven't seen pretty much any of these except for like I've seen The Postman Always Rings Twice um, and I had seen Sweet Smell of Success before. But other than that, I'm looking at this whole collection like, oh, my gosh, I've never seen like any of these. I might have seen Out of the Fog. I don't remember. Um, That's the one with uh, John Garfield. Yeah, Ida Lupino and John Garfield. I think I've seen that one. Um. Obviously, I don't remember it very well. So I'm going to be watching all of these this month. <laughs> well, of the ones that that are new, that have been new to me, I've seen a number of them now. Um, and and I think my probably my favorite is Fallen Angel, which uh, has Dana Andrews and Linda Darnell in it. And this is a really interesting one because it's a noir that actually takes place in a small town. Mm. Uh, and basically, Dana Andrews is this um, uh, con man who... who essentially can't afford a ticket any further uh, and winds up in this small California town. And he's basically trying to earn enough money to get out of it. He meets Linda Darnell, who is this kind of vampy waitress at a a local bar and becomes involved with her. He becomes obsessed with her and 
through different different things happen. And basically he winds up deciding that in order to marry Linda Darnell, he's going to con um the the two local local spinsters uh essentially out of out of their money and then run away with Linda Darnell. One of the things that I really liked about this was actually the Linda Darnell character. Uh, who is, again, definitely, you know, is not being portrayed as a good person, particularly. <laughs> but she has this whole thing of like, I'm, you know, I want marriage. I want, I am tired of working my ass off. I am tired of dealing with all of these men who just like come in and hit on me and won't leave me alone. Um, if I, I am not going to go away with you, I'm not going to go anywhere with you unless you have money and you are able to marry me. And at one point he's just like, well, no, I'll, no, I'll totally marry you. So we should definitely sleep together. And she's like, no, absolutely not. Get the money, get me the ring, get married, and then I will sleep with you. And there's something very like respectable about the character where I'm just like, you know what? She sticks to her guns and she's just like, no, fuck you. I told you what I required. This is what I require. You can't give it to me. Fine. But I'm not waiting around for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's very satisfying in some ways sign me up i want to watch that right now <laughs> it is it is a really interesting film awesome uh so yeah i do recommend fallen angel and then like i said honestly i think all of them uh all of the ones that i've seen have been great you know they've ranged from very good to fantastic uh another one that i really liked that is more of a almost gothic horror vibe is the house on telegraph hill Mm -hmm. um which is about a woman you know speaking of, of wartime experiences it's about a polish woman who survives a concentration camp and winds up taking the identity of her friend who died uh and because her friend had an a house an estate in america um that she was trying to get to and before she was captured by the nazis and so what happens is she basically this, this woman takes on the um uh, the per the identity of of her friend and winds up you know discovers that her friend had a son that she has not seen since he was like two years old uh, and and ends up in this house on Telegraph Hill where you know she's dealing with both a a lawyer who may or may not be trying to kill her and uh, and this kind of creepy old house and trying to you know be a good person but at the same time knowing that she's essentially taken over this woman's life and is misrepresenting herself it's a very good film it's really interesting sounds awesome yes so any final thoughts any last things that, that you've been watching you wanted to shout out before we close this out karen well i did want to mention that last weekend when i was on my girls trip we were looking for a movie to watch and i introduced all of them to barb and star go to vista del mar and because I have very good friends, they all loved it so much. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> Always good to know that our friends are good, decent people that exactly. we respect. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. Like, it's just so fun when you have a movie that you love and you introduce it to a group of people who none of them had ever seen it before. And they're all just like giggling and laughing at all the right places and then just spend the rest of the weekend quoting it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great i'm always nervous with that kind of thing though because mm -hmm. i'm just like but i like it and if you don't i'm gonna be really sad i'm gonna be so I sad if yeah like it. i warned them going into it like okay you guys this movie is weird but just go with me on this and i i i tell everyone i explain to everyone this is like laverne and shirley meets 
Austin Powers. And if you're into those things and that combination sounds interesting to you, you'll probably like this movie. I have another friend that I told that to earlier this week and she was like, oh, that sounds not like my thing at all. And I said, good, then don't watch it because you will ruin it for me. <laughs> I, th- I think that's a good description, actually, of, the, of that. Yeah, that's a good. I like I like that a great deal. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's it can be really nerve wracking to be like, mm-hmm. I really love this movie and I want you to love it, too. But if you don't, please don't be mad at me about it. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I was just so happy. All It wasn't even like most of them liked it. They all did. And that just just brought joy to my heart and one friend actually we're on a marco polo group you know and one of them was just like i've told five people to watch this movie and i was just like yes i should have been paid for marketing this <laughs> you should because i have done a good job you should so <laughs> so if you are looking for something not noir related watch barb and star go to visit Omar. it is yes. i i will reinforce karen's recommendation thank it is, you it is loads of fun I will uh, also mention just because it's in theaters this weekend, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, the sequel. Um, it's good. It's it's very different from the first movie. Obviously, it needed to be. Um, and when it is a movie about grief and um mourning, it is incredible. When it is a superhero movie, it's less incredible. Um, but still definitely worth watching. Right. Yeah, I've I've seen I've seen some good things about it. a lot of it seems to be centered around that exactly what you're saying about the story of grief. Um, yeah, which is interesting for a superhero movie, obviously. But of course, this one is has a lot of other elements attached to it because of Chad, uh, Chadwick Bosman. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely like I mean, Ryan Coogler and the entire cast were processing their own grief when they were making this movie, which I actually think was part of where the problems come in as far as like when they try to blend it with actually being a superhero movie. Um, I think that they really needed a little bit more time. And I think that the, the MCU timeline did make this a little bit um, it was, it was almost, it was too soon. And so it's like, they definitely were able to do the grief really well because they were feeling it, but trying to tie it into the bigger picture, it was like, they just weren't ready for that part. And I think that the movie overall suffers for it, but it, not enough that it's like, Oh, this is terrible. This is a misfire. I think it still does a lot of things very, very well. Great. Cool. Well, I think that that is going to close us out for this week. Um, Thank you so much for listening to us. And as always, we are really grateful to our lovely patrons who include Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Carriata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Pow, and Will. Thank you once again for uh, continuing to support us, guys. We hope to be bringing you some uh, cool bonus episodes really soon. Um, you know, we do, we have buttons. I think that people should have gotten, if you haven't gotten them, please let us know, uh, if you, if you're owed something, um, you can join them on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash citizen name. This is the best way to support the podcast. And you do also get like other fun things as a result. Um, especially now with Twitter, like imploding, we, we are going to be focusing a lot more on <laughs> all of our various elements. Cause boy, uh, um, <laughs> you can also uh, buy some stuff from us at zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. And we do still have a ko-fi, ko-fi-fi.com slash citizen dame. 
Um, of course, we are always on our website where we have reviews, lists. We brought back the Citizen Dame 5. Uh, so, and we've also got some good film noir recommendations for this month. Um, that's on our website, citizendamepod.com. You can get in touch with us a multitude of ways. We are on email, citizendamepod at gmail.com. We are still on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> uh at at citizen dame pod and we are on letterboxd at citizen dame definitely follow us on instagram and letterbox just to like keep updated and everything because god only knows what will happen next <laughs> uh and we will of course continue to have updates etc and of course you can follow us individually where are you i'm on twitter instagram and letterboxd at karen m peterson and i am on twitter instagram and letterboxd at lh business and so is my dog. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much, you guys. We will talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> May I ask you a naive question, Mr. Falco? Exactly how does a press agent work? Uh, well, answer the man, Sidney. He's trying to take you off the hook. You just saw a good example of it, Senator. A press agent eats a columnist's dirt and is expected to call it manna. But don't you help columnists by furnishing them with items? Sure. A columnist can't do without us, except our good and great friend J.J. forgets to mention that. You see, we furnish him with items. What, some cheap, gruesome gags? You print them, don't you? Yes, with your clients' names attached. That's the only reason the poor slobs pay you, to see their names in my column all over the world. Now I make it out you're doing me a favor? I didn't say The day I can't get along without a press agent's handouts, I'll close up shop and move to Alaska lock, stock, and barrel.